you know, my first Tour de France was what, 97? I think there was like 210 starters. If five were clean, I'd be surprised. But that's what professional cycling was at that level. That was kind of what you were expected to do back then. I did a transfusion in 2000 with Lance, and let's just say it was strongly encouraged. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Pickleball, a.k.a. Rabbi Cantlose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talked to Tyler Hamilton, who was eight times in the Tour de France and Lance Armstrong's former teammate. He has also been on my attainables list for quite a while and wrote one of my favorite books on biking ever. It's called The Secret Race, a behind-the-scenes look at the training and lifestyle of an elite bike rider level, also exposes some of the doping stuff that went on. Even if you're not into riding, it is an amazing story. You can learn more about Tyler if you enjoy this episode by checking out his book, The Secret Race, his teaching academy, Tyler Hamilton Training, or his podcast, Adventure Audio. If you want to learn how to recover from a public fallout, he did admit his doping, the mindset of a champion, and behind the scenes of elite athletes, you're going to love this episode. You'll learn at least these three gigantic things. Number one, what does it take to be a pro athlete? So much more than we realize. Number two, what's it like to ride on the Tour de France? I think I'm going to try to make it next year with a lot of doping. Just kidding. Number three, what's it like doping with Lance? And you're going to enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we dive in, make sure you check out AppSumo.com. It is the number one site online for software deals. So if you are starting or growing an online business, this should be your homepage. Go sign up for the free newsletter at AppSumo.com. I'm also doing an insane giveaway where I'm giving away my Tesla. Yes, my Tesla. Make sure you subscribe to YouTube.com slash OKDork to find out. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Reader7 from the US of A saying the episodes are generous and insightful. Thank you so much for that comment, and I love every single one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want a shout-out in a future episode, leave a review anywhere you listen to online. I check every single one of them. I'm so excited. Your book is probably the most gifted book I've ever bought. The behind the scenes of just the life of a pro cyclist, with and without the controversy, is just like, I think I was just so damn amazed what it takes to actually be at the level. Regardless of all the, you know, the doping stuff, I was like, holy shit, this is nuts. Yeah, even take out the doping, like it's still, it's a different life. From the outside, it doesn't, you don't really get a glimpse of that. But yeah, I mean, professional cyclists at that level, they all know it's not very glamorous. Sure, every July, if you're lucky enough to be in the Tour de France, like, you know, you get three weeks of, you know, attention, but it's a difficult life. You know, you're away from your friends and family the majority of the time, you know, you're tired the majority of the time you're hungry the majority of the time yeah you're always trying to like make weight or like make race weight or get for me at least you know i think for a lot of riders you're always struggling with trying to stay pretty lean and trim unfortunately in a sport like side professional cycling you know it's your weight is such a big deal it's really important you know i wish that wasn't the case but so not only do you have to train your tail off you know during the day but you have to be super disciplined you know, when you got home at, after your ride and eating the right things and getting off rest. And, you know, you missed out a lot. You missed out a lot of, I remember uh, catching part of my sister's wedding and then having a jet off to a bike race. But, uh, you know, so a lot of sacrifices. But, yeah, I mean, it was all worth it. It was, a, I mean, when you had success, it was a really uh, just wonderful. You know, and I'd say there was like 99 bad days for every one good day you had. It sounds pretty impressive that you're able to do it, even though one out of 100 days was great. Yeah, but I mean, those days were really special. Those days were special. Do you have a day like that that comes to mind? Oh, you know, like winning a stage in the tour was, you know, for me, it's just, you know, I couldn't believe 
1997, in my first tour, I couldn't believe that I was doing this. I was in the Tour de France. I actually had a number on my bag. I remember telling my parents, like, hey, come on over and come over early because I don't know if I'll finish. And this is probably my first and only tour. So for my third year as a professional, my first year at the Tour de France level, I saved everything because I thought it was my one and only shot. And that was as good as it was going to get, you know. But every year it kept getting bigger and bigger. My dad was into bikes, which I didn't realize till recently. And he passed and I have one of his old bikes. He stole it, I think, from someone, which is not a good good part of the story. And I've been trying to get someone to steal his bike as part of the, you know, keeping it forward. But no one's been able to steal it yet. Did you grow up in Austin? I grew up in uh, San Jose, California. Oh, great. Awesome. That's a good cycling town. So, you know, like Woodside and Stanford and the Dish, all those things. I didn't really even know about it until I got older. What's that climb just to the east of San Jose? I'd have to look it up. Yeah, there's a big climb outside of there to the east, I believe. It's funny the different words and things that are interesting with uh, all sports and hobbies. Like I've been getting way more into gravel biking, bikepacking, and mountain biking. And uh, mountain biking, it's like, oh man, check out that line. Do you see that line? And then, you know, as you say with road biking, it's like, oh man, that climb. Oh yeah, what grade was that? I'm a roadie, but I like riding. I like riding on dirt now, for sure. You see, it seemed like it, like you've gotten more into bikepacking. Well, yeah, it's a lot. It seems like a lot more fun and, you know, Let's be honest. I think it's a little bit safer, you know. Riding on the road these days is it's a bit dangerous for sure. People are really distracted in cars, and definitely into the gravel movement. And you know, when you get on your mountain bike and ride single track, I'll take that too. But yeah, you know, gravel's been great, and that's awesome to hear you're into bikepacking. I kind of stumbled upon it a few years ago, and just I fell in love with it. It's great. You know, it's the opposite of like bike racing, kind of slow and methodical, and you know, you're stopping and looking around and take pictures for me with bikepacking you don't have a computer you know just go just go just enjoy it any tips or uh, advice in it so my my goal next year is to bike across america yeah so i've been really getting into that like the gear and the training and you know trying to not plan too much but get some of the basics kind of in there do you have any any advice or uh, suggestions well there's a great organization here in missoula montana adventure cycling you'll be able to get all your maps through them I definitely check them out yeah, I don't know. I mean, definitely do some, you know, short trips, you know, two, three day little trips just to hone in on your gear. You know, you don't really need that much stuff. And you don't really realize that till, you know, you're a few days in. You're like, oh, why am I carrying this or that? Good for you. Have you thought about which route you're going to do? Yeah, I've been looking up a bunch of different YouTubers and I've seen different maps. Like there's routes through like certain historic things. My mom had a good point. She's like, well, what matters? Like, what is there anything you really want to see or is there a theme? The only thing I've decided is I want to start in Santa Cruz, where one of my best friends lives, and my other best friend lives in Connecticut. And so kind of figured out those, Vegas, Albuquerque, and then maybe kind of through Tennessee. Seems just like a cool state, like the whole like Green Mountain region. Oh, uh, yeah. Chattanooga is cool. Yeah. But I haven't really fully planned that part. I've been doing uh, trial runs locally. Yeah, I bought some gear and I went last week and... uh it was definitely a clusterfuck. Like I didn't have poles for the tent, so I slept on the ground. And then my bags were too big, so they were the saddlebag and the front, the handlebar bag were rubbing. You know, just different things like that were fun to explore. Yeah, but it's cool. You know, it, embrace like being new at it. Just enjoy that part. Like you kind of, yeah, you start realizing like, oh yeah, you could do the bags like this or that, or the tent goes best here and there. But good for you for doing that. I've enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, and it's a good, really great way to explore a new region. In a very different way, too. You were going to say about your trip? Oh, yeah. I did a trip down in um, South America a couple of years ago, and it was 
that I did a three week bike back trip solo, and it was just one of the coolest things I've ever done. Kind of uh, zigzagged across the uh, Andes down in Patagonia, and it was just awesome. Mostly dirt roads, and yeah. Did you go with other friends? Yeah, I do sometimes with other friends, my girlfriend, or or solo. You know, sometimes going solo is good for you. You know, you figure out all the world's problems and. You definitely slow down a lot. And it's, you know, I think doing that every once in a while by yourself is a good thing. That's the part that I've been wondering about with cycling for me, because I've gotten a little bit less road because I've noticed with gravel and mountain bike, I'm kind of more present. Like with road, how many hours have you sat on that saddle thinking to yourself? Yeah, a lot. You probably have some amazing thoughts. Like I, I was curious what you guys think about or what you tell yourself, like, you know, when you're on the road so much on, on the seat. I mean, it depends. If you're by yourself, yeah, you do a lot of deep thinking and Sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's almost too much thinking. You know, it's always great having a training partner or a bunch of people to ride with and keep the conversation loose and the, and the time can kind of fly by really quickly. But I mean, I think it's good, honestly, a combination of all of it. I think it's good to train by yourself and being able to listen to your body. And, you know, sometimes people are always distracted by other people or whatever, or looking at their, you know, power or whatever. But sometimes it's just good to not look at anything and just kind of observe how your body's doing, how it's feeling. What was going through it, I guess, more well on the professional time? Yeah, I guess, wh- where does your mind go when you're in like a race? On a race? Oh, yeah, you're in the you're in that present moment. I mean, you better be in that present moment. If you're thinking about something else, you're going to be off the back really soon or whatever, or not be fully focused and, you know, you're skidding across the pavement really quickly. Because as soon as you start whatever daydreaming or something, you know, that's when bad things happen. Yeah, I, I noticed that, especially with mountain biking for me. Like if I start thinking about, you know, my ex-girlfriend or, you know, I think about what's for dinner. And I'm like, oh, shit, like I just had a drop or something that pretty scary. Yeah, that can happen. That can happen. Yeah, especially in mountain biking. Sometimes like I feel like, oh, I'm riding so well down this hill. And then next thing you know, like maybe you get a little too confident or maybe you get like the ego just goes a little too high. Boom. Next thing you know, you're stuffing yourself off. Was it weird when you're non-racing career? To get back on a bicycle? Oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like an ex-athlete, but I still like to, you know, get out and do stuff, whether it's, you know, yoga or going for like a little trail run or getting out on the mountain bike. Yeah. But I, I mean, I try to stay active, but I don't consider myself like an athlete anymore. You know, I don't have to go out and train every day for my job, you know, but I do feel like for my well-being, I need to, you know, get out in nature. I try to get out every day and do something. I don't know with that. If I were to ride with you, what's it like to ride with a normal person? I was curious, like, what's the level of difference between like a pro athlete, pro rider versus like a normal human? I mean, I'm now now just a, a kind of a normal whatever social cyclist or whatever. But if you're going to ride with somebody who's ra- racing in, in the Tour de France or Giro d'Italia or Volta España, you know, I mean, you'd be on the wheel. Like, I would be on the wheel also. You know, just hanging on. They ride their bikes pretty much every day all year round, you know, they take a few days off here and there, but they're real specialists, you know. I'm a weekend warrior now. Yeah, maybe I could ride with them for the first hour, kind of side by side, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, but like, you know, they're out riding for four to six hours of training. So, yeah, it's a different level. I mean, I I ride one, once in a while with a friend of mine here in town who's a master's racer. He's, yeah, he uh, makes me suffer a little bit. I don't try to kick anybody's butt anymore what it's about for me i enjoy just riding with people of all different ages and i'm not paid to ride my bike anymore well i think that's kind of a fascinating thing that we don't realize like you're like oh man i got to the tour de france i was like do people realize that it's three weeks of hell it's not three weeks you're partying 
you're dancing in Ibiza or whatever, you're three weeks, like, you know, as you said yourself, like doing a marathon a day, what does it take to be at that level from the training and then from the eating specifically? Yeah, complete dedication, 110% dedication. I mean, there are a lot of riders want to be, you know, at that Tour de France level and there's only so many spots. So if you're not 110% focused, somebody else is going to take your spot. So that means, you know, a lot of sacrifice, you know, from friends and family, you know, missing out on a lot of stuff. When in doubt, you know, you're always rest, you know. They used to say, you know, when you're standing, sit, when you're sitting, lie down, you know, always saving your legs, saving your legs, saving your legs, resting, you know, training hard and resting hard and being super disciplined with your diet. I was probably like 25, 30 pounds lighter at my race weight. Yeah. What's your weight now? I'm like 5'8", probably 155, 160. I was down like 130 in my race weight. Just skin and bones. You know, my pectoral muscles were like, they didn't exist. It was just like a ribs and like a nipple. <laughs> you know, it was, it was a pretty sad, a sad sight. But yeah, I mean, but I rode my life fast. What's the training kind of regimen of that, of a professional cyclist? I think now they're maybe doing a little bit less and a little bit more specifically now. But back then, yeah, it was pretty much days were four to six hours or four to seven hours. You got a laundry list of intervals to do every day. Rest, a lot of rest, a lot of rest. A lot of times you put your feet up on the wall at night, let your legs kind of uh, lose some of that lactic acid from all your hard training. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that glamorous, really. It was like a life, a little bit of a life of a monk. You know, the training, getting ready for a big race like the Tour de France, yeah. You know, to bed early, you sleep as much as you can, then you train as hard as you can, eat as smart as you can, then do it all over again. Wow. It's so interesting because I, I think for someone like yourself, like I rode 25 miles uh, out in Austin yesterday and it, it was fun. We rode at uh, the Circuit of the Americas. They actually open up the racetrack. No way. Yeah, it's really cool. So you can uh, they open that up in the summertime and late summer. And so I burned uh, whatever, a thousand calories based on Strava. And I think a normal rider, I'm like, oh, a thousand calories. I can, you know, I'm going to eat everything I want tonight. And it's it's actually almost counterintuitive. You guys are almost like you're eating less than you should be. Or maybe just, I don't know what it's around. It seems like, I think we overcomp, like, I think regular non-athletes are like, oh, yeah, I can overcompensate with an extra large pizza. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, we get really efficient. One, for example, Cliff Bar could take you further at the more fit you got. Let's just put it that way. I remember in that, you, you take a little bit of an off-season, you take maybe a month off the bike, three weeks off the bike, and then you start training again. I remember you get so hungry early on, like in those early days of training, just because your body's really inefficient. But as you got fitter and fitter, yeah. You, you wouldn't need to eat as much. You're kind of lean, mean racing machine. Yeah. I mean, you are a machine. You're almost non-human at that point. Well, you're, I mean, think about how much time you're spending on the bike. You know, I mean, I remember spending 42, 45 hours on a bike, you know, in a week. I was probably overdoing it. It probably wasn't the healthiest thing in the world to do. But yeah, there was a life of the professional cyclist. I think they're a lot smarter these days. You know, back when I first became a professional, it was uh, what they call it, LSD, long, slow distance. That's what all the veterans were doing when I first, when I was a neo pro. And then, then over my career, it kind of shifted to like, okay, we need to do maybe a little less time in the saddle, but more structure, more hard intervals and all that. And that's when I started doing that, that's when I made the biggest improvements. When you did intervals and you did less training? Yeah, like really hard, really easy, really hard, really easy, really hard, really easy. So yeah, you'd go out and, you know, a lot of times I'd have to write it down in my training on a piece of paper, all the different intervals I had to do throughout the day, you know, different intensities, different cadences, 
some on the flats, some on climbs. You know, nowadays, I would say the modern workforce, people, we've had people, we work at our company for a year. They're like, man, I'm burnt out. I'm like, dude, you've barely worked for one year. I was thinking about that for you, like, you know, with how much cycling and how much you committed, you know, how did you not get burnt out? And how did you keep going on that? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I got burned out a few times during my career. You know, I think it did help to, to change teams. I changed teams a few times. I think that helped. I went from being on an American team to, for many, many years, on the U.S. Postal team to switching it up and going to a Danish team. You know, that was a lot of fun. And I, I think my, that team, it was Team CSE, I believe we had like 25 riders. And I think we had like 16 or 17 different nationalities. It was pretty cool. Sitting there at the dinner table at night, you'd hear all different languages. And, you know, that was a great learning experience for me. And, and I kept it fun and kept it kind of light. And, you know, change is hard, but change is good. I know that for a fact. You know, you sometimes get comfortable and maybe it's with job or maybe it's in, in a certain hobby you do. Yeah. You sometimes take a couple steps back, look at the big picture and maybe and try something different. And then is the recovery different for a pro athlete, I'm guessing? So like the massages or I don't know if they had as many ice baths and things like that. Yeah, we did all that. We didn't have those like boots or anything like that. But yeah, we did some ice baths, massage, chiropractor. Sometimes you get a specialist that would do lymphatic drainage. That was super um, helpful. Yeah. You know, we didn't have a lot of sports psychologists back then, but, you know, I think they do now and that's great. You know, that can be helpful, you know, because riders go through so many different things for sure, you know, and they have a, they also have a life off the bike too. You know, you got to deal with that. So I think they're better with that today for sure. You made me think uh, earlier today with one of the guys I work with, there's a, it's a recovery gym called Generator Lab in Austin and they've got the boots, they've got hot tub, cold tub, you go back and forth and then a sauna. And yeah, I was joking to myself before in the past where it's like these people come there and I'm like, did you do any exercise this week? They're like, nah, man, but I'm recovering. I'm like, from what? You haven't done nothing versus someone like yourself. It's like you legitimately, I saw a woman there who was a, a track runner. I was like, yeah, you need this. I'm like a, a hobbyist, but it is interesting to see like what a pro level person does and you know, take it down a little bit to some of the hobby level, but it's just, it is funny. It's kind of never ending, really. I mean, there's always something you can do extra, right? You know? I mean, are you standing? You should sit. Are you sitting? Maybe you should lie down. You know, should you put your feet up on the wall? Should you put those boots on? You know, do you need more carbohydrate before tomorrow's training or whatever? I know you're always thinking, you know, and there's always stuff to read up on. During my career, I took it as seriously as anyone did. I felt like it was definitely an opportunity. And not only that, I feel like a lot, I just had a lot of people that helped me get there. So I felt like I owed it to all of them to do the best I could. And not goof off, really. I think one of the things I loved about your book was just how much details there is about the training and behind the scenes of a race and the preparation that I just think in general, it was fascinating to read for even non-cyclists, which I bought the book for, but you weren't making a lot of money. I guess, how did you keep going as a cyclist? I hate when people say, what's your motivation? I was like, I don't know. I like cycling and it's enjoyable, but I think I'm fascinated when people go through career choices without money as the main motivator. So I guess I'm curious how you approach that. I mean, as an amateur, I was scrapping. Luckily, when I went to college, you know, they were like giving out credit cards without checking your background, anything. So I remember getting credit cards and I was luckily those were able to get me to the races to get noticed, to get selected, to get on the national team. You know, had I not had that opportunity, I don't know if I would have made it. So I scrapping around and, you know, I had a pickup truck. I was doing odd jobs there in Boulder, Colorado. 
Yeah, and then the first few years, yeah, you, you know, I think my first year as a pro in 1995, I made like 30 grand, and it, you know, it slowly bumped up. But then eventually, I started getting some bigger results, and you know, my contract went up. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of years where I was eating ramen noodles or you know, all you can eat pasta bar in, in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, those are actually some of the great memories. Actually, the climb up is my most favorite part. Really, the whole thing just. Proving people wrong and surprising people, including yourself, you know, that was fun. You know, when you're up at the top, yeah, it's different. It's a little bit more stressful. There's a lot of pressure on you to have success, not only for you, but for your team, for your team's existence. So it's still fun and exciting, but it's different. It's a lot different. You know, it's more, felt more like a job and like, you know, this race, this result, this number, I need to get it. But the climb up is a lot of fun. Yeah, I dig that. It really... I think a lot of times in my life, and I think a lot of people, it's like, oh, man, I want to get to the Tour de France, or I want to get this much money. I do it with startups and entrepreneurs. And then once you get that much money, you're like, oh, I'm there. What happens now? And you're like, oh, I'm still alive. Like, oh, it still keeps going. So I think there's the point of where do I want to go? But also, how do I really enjoy the parts along the way? I think it's definitely something I'm exploring. Yeah, I mean, it's good once in a while to take some time to look around and observe where you are. Take a few steps back and just enjoy it. Give maybe give yourself a small pat on the back. Even us that are so tough on ourselves, you know, I'm pretty tough on myself and I use that to my advantage as an athlete. It is important to kind of to observe where you are and appreciate where you've come from and appreciate all the people that have helped you along the way, you know. And once in a while reach out and let them know, you know. I need to do that more often for sure. Dude, that's a great one. I'll write that down. Uh who do you think of when you think of that? Oh, like an old coach, like Steve Pucci, I was just thinking about as I said that, you know. Yeah, what about him? Oh, he was just a great, fantastic person, an awesome coach. And yeah, had I never bumped into him, I wouldn't have been a cyclist, 1,000%. Huh, what did he do? Or Yeah, what about him? I mean, he really got me going. He was uh, from back to Massachusetts. Yeah, I was uh, learning to, to race my bike a little bit. And he just really pulled me up in under a wing and kind of showed me the ropes and and he's helped a lot of other cyclists along the way too. So yeah, I felt very lucky to have him as a as a mentor. Absolutely. Just send him a text or something after the chat. Oh yeah, sounds Steve Pucci. Dude, represent. Yeah, he's awesome. Any most proud or wild moments of writing? Not the Tour de France. I want to ask about that afterwards, but just like from writing, you have any stories that you're like, ah, oh, this race really meant a lot. Or when I think of writing, like I go back to this moment. Oh yeah, I was a downhill ski racer up through college. My sophomore year, I training with the ski team. I broke my back, and then they said I couldn't ski that winter, and I picked up a road bike, and they said, oh, come join the cycling team at University of Colorado. And then and a year later, I was the uh, collegiate national champion riding for Senior Boulder, you know, and, and the collegiate national championships were back in Boston. You know, maybe if you look at my career, my results, maybe not the biggest result of my career, but it was just certainly winning, being collegiate national champion was pretty special at that time, you know, in my home state, that was great. And that was kind of when I was like, oh, wow, I'm pretty good at this. I didn't know where I was going. But, you know, uh, yeah, winning a World Cup race back in, what was that, 2003? It's called Liege, Bastogne Liege is one of the five monuments. That was pretty special. One of the hardest one-day races, I'd say, on the planet. But, you know, those had asterisks. Winning in the tour and winning Liege, Bastogne Liege, there was, you know, doping involved in that. So, you know, it's just different. It's still look at those. There's still great memories, but yeah, there was, there was an asterisk next to it. 
Do you put the asterisk next to it, or do you just think it's there because of other people? Well, I got to say, I, I got to be honest and transparent here. You know, that was involved in those victories for sure. So, I mean, I like to be open and honest with everybody now. I mean, I, I had to lie about it for such a long time. It's a struggle with the kind of dual life that you had to lead back then as a professional cyclist, you know, hiding that, what you had to do behind the scenes, you know. Two things on that. You've talked a lot about it, and you've written a book about the experience with it. But for someone like me, if I were to go get EPRO, 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 excuse me. See, I wouldn't even get the right one. I'd probably yeah, get yeah. this wrong thing. I'd turn me into a woman <laughs> and testosterone and some of these things. Like how much of a difference would it make for me and for most riders? Because I think that's the part that I finally had a breakthrough a year ago. And I just want to say it to highlight it. I think most consumers or just civilians or non-riders, we think that the whole difference wasn't. We think the, the whole thing was you doing that and none of the actual training and all the hours that went into it. It's only a few percentage, but that few percentage makes the whole difference. Yeah, it's hard to say. And that's the sad part about, I mean, a lot of us from my generation, you know, came forward and told the truth. And yeah, what people don't realize is there was a lot, so much hard work behind the scenes. It wasn't, we weren't sitting on a couch taking performance enhancing drugs and just, you know, laughing all the way to the bank. That wasn't the case at all. It was a huge dedication. The training was insane. The rest was insane. The travel was insane. But yeah, there was a small part of it that included doping. And I've heard anywhere from a few percentage points up to like 15%. So I don't know. It's somewhere in the middle there. Yeah. Did you feel it? Do you feel like, oh shit, this is like, like I'm juiced up? Yeah, you'd feel the difference of like when you were Paniagua on bread and water. And then you wouldn't feel it after one injection of EPO, but after a few weeks of on that therapy, as I call it. Are writers today still doing it, most likely? You know, I don't know. I'm pretty far removed from it. I mean, once in a while, they'll catch somebody, you know, they'll have a positive test. But, you know, I've heard it's a lot cleaner than it was back in the kind of dark days, the Wild West days when I was racing. But I hope so. I mean, I think the tests are a lot better than they used to be. So the loopholes are getting smaller and smaller. But I think there are still a few loopholes. So hopefully they're not taking advantage of that. If you see me wear, win like a stage of the Tour de France in the upcoming years, just know I'm on it. I'm coming after you. <laughs> yeah, dude. Just like I was doping for sure. Cycling's taking a beating and a lot because of my generation. But, you know, it's such a hard sport. A race like the Tour de France is three weeks. And it's like you were saying, it's like running a marathon every day. And it's just brutal. And when there's uh, shortcuts, people have cut corners. You know, hopefully we can have a day when we look at a race and know 100% that everyone did a clean. I think we're certainly heading in that direction. Absolutely. We need the test to be like 1000%. Was it not crazy for you then? Like when people are denying it, let's take Lance for instance. I denied it too. Yeah, you're denying it. Lance, And like you see Lance denying it on TV. You're, aren't you like, holy fuck, he's totally lying. Or are you just, you in a mindset, well, we're all doing it. So it's okay. But like that would kind of drive me crazy. I never liked it. I had many committee meetings. I call them committee meetings in the middle of the night wake up sometime between like two o'clock and four o'clock in the morning and, and just stare at the ceiling and kind of think about it. Yeah, it's like a double life you had to live. But that's what professional cycling was at that level. That was kind of what you were expected to do back then. So and if you didn't do it, that probably let you go on clean, but most likely you were going to get kind of pushed to the back and eventually uh, push out of the sport. It was pretty dirty, and it was just the way it was back then. And honestly, a lot of people didn't even think it was cheating because, you know, everyone was doing it. That's not what I'm saying, but, you know, that's how a lot of people felt or, or justified it that way. So they could sleep at night, you know. I mean, I tried to do that, you know, and 
yeah, everyone's doing EPO. And, you know, not everybody was doing like blood transfusions, kind of more of the team leaders were doing that. That's a whole another thing we could talk about. You know, my first Tour de France was what, 97? I think there was like 210 starters. If I were clean, I'd be surprised. Wow. So it was just the way it was going. It was back then. And Lance didn't start it. And when he was pro, it became pro in 93. I didn't start it. And, you know, when I became pro in 95, it was, it existed for a long time. And it was just kind of a part of the fabric of the sport. And it wasn't until really uh, things came crashing down that people realized that it was a big problem. But right underneath, you know, the surface, it was pretty dark. Dark in what way? And like, well, just dark. I mean, like, you know, that you have to lead, lead a double life. And, you know, just below the surface was like, yeah come into the hotel room, we're going to give you a shot of EPO or a testosterone pill, and this is what you're expected to do. Did you have Lance, like, talk crap to you about it? Or, like, yo, you better do this, don't tell anyone. Any stories that come to mind around that? You know, he was a participant, you know, I was a participant. I did a transfusion in 2000 with Lance, and let's just say it was strongly encouraged. That's where you get someone else, like, he's like, yo, you gotta take this blood? You take out your own, the doctor's store it in a fridge. For like three weeks and they reinfuse it back into you do they add stuff to your blood they'll put stuff, like a solution to help the blood cells kind of uh, last longer i can't remember what the name of it was but yeah you know kind of dark you know it was your own blood but like watching a plastic bag fill up with your own red blood cells and then not fun not fun are you because it, now it's been over like what 10 years 15 years yeah it's been a long time long time do you get tired of talking about lance armstrong and doping are you tired of hearing about it? I mean, I live in Missoula, Montana now. It's like, I don't have to talk about it that often. Sorry. I don't mean to bring it here. <laughs> Except you, Noah, you no, son of a bitch. But I'm happy to talk about it. You know, it's what I went through. It's to say I don't want to talk about it. You know, I feel like that would be, you know, short-sighted on my part. It's, a, you know, I went through this and a big learning lesson for me. And I think a big learning lesson for a lot of other people. So by sharing my story, I feel like, you know, I can help the younger generations for sure. I'm not necessarily that proud of what I did, but, you know, I'm proud of like what I'm doing today and being open and honest about it and trying to warn kids about some of the crossroads in life. And like, you know, when you come to one of those big crossroads, you know, take some time to think about it. Take a few steps back and don't get rushed into it or almost like bullied into it. Take some time and listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. I mean, I know what my heart was saying. Did it seem, because I, I actually, I kind of disagree with you. I know this is going to be, this is not what you want. No, it's cool. But I mean, you were at a point where everyone's doing it. The only way that, this is your life dream at that point. Yeah. And it's like, it's not that I felt like you were cheating if everyone's taking the same thing. I get it from one the other side. I'm not, I'm not totally saying, oh yeah, everyone should cheat. But it's hard if that's like every, you know, you want to be a part of it. It's hard when you look back at what it was like, whatever, 23, 24 years old, you know, couple months about potentially riding my first Tour de France. That's when I, you know, crossed it, took my first uh, doping product ever. And having that carrot right in front of me was difficult. So, I mean, I do forgive myself for going that direction and kind of getting sucked into that world for sure. But also it's important now, like, okay, this is what I did. This is who I am. And it's important for the sport too, for the sport to grow and for the sport to recognize some of its problems that it had, you know. We need some people telling the truth. We can't just cover it all, right? Because there's plenty of people that haven't told the truth, you know, and that's fine. But like, let's be honest, it was a dark time. There was a ton of doping going on. The two things that come to mind with that being said is like, number one, you, in one of your interviews, you talked about how you got to throw out a pitch at a Red Sox game. Yeah. In, a, in some way, it's almost you're rewarded because you take this stuff, which, you know, honestly, the stuff 
if everyone didn't take it, then it would have been a fair competition, but there's no way you could have even com- fairly competed, literally. And then it's, you know, you're rewarded for that behavior, right? That's got to mess with the psyche. You're like, hey, I'm taking this stuff. I don't really want to. You make me think like sometimes if I drink a beer, I'm going to eat some pizza that I normally want to have eaten, but it's like, oh man, I got a little beer in me. You're kind of rewarded poorly because you're like, yo, you're getting these things. So I guess part of me wonders the lesson for kids. And do you feel like today, nowadays, you have to like overcompensate with your honesty? What do you mean about overcompensate? I feel like you're like, everything has to be totally radical honesty and candor because to kind of catch up. I don't don't even know if you did anything that wrong to me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Looking back, I can understand my young self doing that, you know, getting caught up in that world. And, you know, I was doing it for thought the right reasons and all that. And I wasn't trying to cheat anybody, but obviously the system at that level, it was, you cut some corners. I don't need to beat myself up about it too much. You know, did that plenty for a while. What do you mean? Like you just regretted it or you just were like down for a long time about it? Well, for a long time, you know, I was, it was like, I was the black sheep and like, I was the one with maybe a few other individuals who cheated, but you know, not till really, you know, kind of Lance came forward that people realize, Oh, you know, it was really, Dirty. It wasn't just a few individuals. It was the majority of them. It's like if you feel like the black sheep, but Lance and I, I've met Lance and uh, I've hung out with him in Austin. But it's interesting that you felt like the black sheep because I almost feel like his celebrity is still pretty fucking high. And I'm not knocking it, but it's just kind of interesting that even with the asterisks or not, each to their own, right? But the ones who come out and come forward with the truth, everyone's kind of handled it differently, and you couldn't really say any of us are exactly the same or have gone through exactly the same thing. But I think about all the individuals like Lance and George and Christian, the guys that have had to come forward and tell the truth. You know, I've thought about them all and like I have no ill will to, towards any of them. Or I hope the best for all of them because it's not easy. It's not easy after you come clean and not easy with your friends and family. And, you know, certainly adjustment period, that's for sure. We've all gone through it. and I think every path has been a little bit different. But it's certainly not been easy for any of us. I have empathy towards all of them. I was reflecting on like when I, I got let go from Facebook really early on and that that's kind of been my asterisk or blemish and and it turned out to be a blessing too in my career. But, you know, it was definitely a struggle. So I'm curious how you mentally and, you know, process through it and work through it. I mean, talking about it was super helpful. But I mean, the first time I told the whole truth was in front of the federal grand jury. It was in Los Angeles. It's either you come in and you tell the truth or you go to jail. And I went in more or less kicking and screaming. Like, I didn't want to tell the truth. I didn't want to hurt myself, hurt my old teammates. I just wanted to like fade away and not ever have to deal with the truth. But I went in, I told the truth and it was like, I was wearing like a hundred pound backpack. And when I came out of that courtroom, you know, seven hours later, I felt a huge, just weight off my back. And then moving forward from there, like I decided like the truth is the way forward for me. And that's when I decided to, um, I mean, I first went on a 60 minutes and did an interview with them. And then I went on to write a book. That's been helpful. You know, talking about it openly for a while, it was my co-author. I was just, you know, we did 70, 65 different interviews for a while. It was him. You know, that was super cathartic for me. Just, yeah, I'm loathing it all. And, but yeah, having uh, supportive friends and family, you know. I mean, you can't put a number on that. That's, that was just you know, insanely helpful. I don't know where I'd be today if I didn't have that kind of support. You know, we were talking earlier at the beginning of this podcast about Marco Pantani. You know, he didn't he didn't have the right support around him during a difficult time. 
and he wasn't the only one. There's other guys like Frank Vanderbrook, who's no longer here. He went through it. Uh, Jimenez from Spain, he went through it. How was the conversation with your parents? That was probably the worst moment for me, you know. I mean, why do you do what you do, you know? For me, athletics, what I always did it because it made my parents proud. So, like, to go back and tell them that you had been, you know, cheating for a long time and then lying about it for a long time on top of that. That was difficult. But, you know, my parents are two great parents. And they, when I spelled it out from the beginning all the way through, you know, they understood. And they, you know, obviously they were disappointed, but yeah, they forgave me pretty much straight away. And I feel pretty lucky there. But yeah, not something I'm ever going to have to do again. That's for sure. Oh, dude, I try to go shoot a gun. I was visiting my family in New Mexico. So we go to the shooting range. I took my dad, which, you know, we don't get a lot of time together. And the, he asked me, he goes, hey, man, um, so have you been out of the state recently? And I was like, yeah, I've only been here about a week. I'm on a road trip. This is a month ago. And he's like, well, you've had to be in the state for two weeks for you to be able to use the gun range. I'm like, well, fuck telling the truth then. And so he's like, yeah, I can't let you shoot. And I told my dad, I was like, fuck, I'm sorry, man. He's like, shit, you should have lied. And this is a father who's very big on integrity and, and telling the truth. And I, he was telling me to lie. So anyways, uh, I did tell the truth. And the guy, I was like, hey, man, is there anything you can do? Eventually, he was like, yeah, actually, it's fine. Like, you're here almost a week. So again, the truth isn't good because I almost didn't get to do what I wanted. <laughs> but didn't it feel good to kind of be honest with him? It made it easier. Yeah, it's, it's harder and easier at the same time. Sure, sure. I do have to ask because I've never been there and I've only seen it on TV is like the behind the scenes of the Tour de France. I mean, because you're, you're in the Super Bowl of cycling. And I guess I was curious, like, what the, what the feeling and the experience and, like, what do you eat on the rides? I don't know, just this, all of it. Yeah, the tour was, like, like no other, really. You know, there's two other grand tours, which is, like, a three-week race, the Tour of Italy, the Tour of Spain, but you can't really compare them to the Tour of France. You know, the tour was, as you said, the Super Bowl. Yeah, it was just, like, an energy just bubbling for three weeks. And, yeah, you felt it. I mean, I can't speak for every rider, but I felt like I rode 10% better because it was the tour de france and you just it was all that energy and you've been kind of working your whole not only the whole year for that race but really your whole life for that race and um yeah it's just exciting to you know the fans were insane you know some of these climbs you couldn't even hear yourself breathe the people were just screaming from both sides right there yeah fun you know but chaotic too you're all you were always moving every day you're transferring every day you had to transfer from the hotel to the race start. You know, then you race for six hours, finish in a different town, and go transfer to the hotel. Sometimes it's an hour drive. It was just on the go, on the go, on the go. As soon as you get to the hotel, it's, you know, shower, massage, chiropractor, dinner. Maybe you have quick a time to call your girlfriend or wife or whoever, family. But it was busy, 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 busy. And honestly, then Monday after the tour finishes, you know, the tour always finishes on a Sunday. So Monday, you just be exhausted. Usually for the week after the tour, it's do like two to three naps a day. You get up, have breakfast, and then you're like, oh, I'm still tired. I'm like, go take a nap. It was good to kind of train a little bit after the tour. Just get out and move your legs a little bit. Pulling yourself on the bike and just so hard. Once your mind knows it's over, your body just shuts down. You gain all this like fluid in your legs you know just your body was just destroyed but yeah i mean wonderful yeah i mean i rode in eight tour de france's and it was so exciting i mean if you've never been to one you should go watch one it's you can't fake goosebumps and i get goosebumps just thinking about it i think i'm gonna put tour de france on my i'm right now on my 2021 bucket list i do yearly bucket lists 
I think racing in it would be number one, but number two is just watching if I can't qualify. Yeah, go watch. If you don't qualify, if you don't qualify. But don't give up. Don't give up, Noah. Now the new thing is not doping. It's the electronic assist hidden in the frames. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. My dad just got that. Those are cool, man. I think it's... A, yeah, it's he's a... loving it. He's loving it. He's 80 and he's bombing around Marblehead. I do want to hear if you have any other uh, Pantani exp- uh, memories or experiences or during the tour or anything like that. Oh, yeah. He, he was an incredible rider. Um, I remember what year was that? I think it was the year 2000. I was on postal team and, you know, I was a domestic kind of riding for Lance and and another Austin native, Kevin Livingston, he was on the team too. And we had Pantani ta- attack really early in this mountain stage. And it was me and Kevin chasing Mark and Pantani all day long. He just really, uh, he made our, our life that day, you know, live in hell. Luckily, we caught him right at the base of the last climb. But, but yeah, we were chasing him for probably like four hours. Kevin's a great, great person. Uh, he was an amazing rider for sure. Now he's a really good coach there in the Austin area. Tony had that real quiet confidence. Never really heard him speak much in the peloton. He kind of kept a low profile, but you know he let his legs do the talking. Yeah, I mean he just flying the bike. You know, going uphill, he's just incredible. My first Tour de France, I remember 1997. We had a stage that finished up Alpe d'Huez, and uh, it was flat all the way to Alpe d'Huez. It was like slow incline, kind of up to the base of Alpe d'Huez, and his team. I think it was Mercantone Uno. They like from the start, they just were on the front and they just drove it all the way to the base of the climb. It was like a field sprint just to get to the bottom of the climb. And then he just launched and from the bottom, he was gone. Wow. I think the thing that blows my mind with cycling, have you ever book, read the book, The Rider by Tim Crabby? No. Do you do audiobook or digital or anything like that? Yeah, both. Yeah. I'll send you the book after this. But I think what what blows my mind about that and and reading more reading your book, The Secret Race, was just how much more strategy there is in cycling than I think any of us real I don't know what we call it, just non professional riders realize. Yeah, like you're like oh they you had to catch Pentani, but you were a domestique, which for everyone else out there, you're kind of the guy that takes all the the wind more or less. Yeah, I guess that that was kind of fascinating. You know, I'm curious to hear your opinion about that. Or yeah, I mean, uh, back when I was racing, it was nine riders per. Tour de France team. And on the postal team, we had really Lance as our guy. He was our number one focus. And so we had eight other guys who were focused on helping him win the Tour de France. And, you know, some would focus on early in the stage, trying to get in the breakaway or doing certain things. Others would kind of focus on the, on the mountains, like myself and Kevin Livingston. We were kind of, to kind of save our energy until we hit the mountains. But yeah, other riders were expected to work on the flats and everyone really had a role. We talk about that every morning in the team meeting and on the team bus. And sometimes those roles would shift a little bit. Maybe, you know, you're expected to be kind of the last. Sometimes Kevin Livingston and I would shift. I'd kind of burn my matches before him and other times he would flip that around, depending on how we felt. We would get Lance to the most critical part of the race as fresh as possible. So what does that entail? Like, so we make sure he never touches the wind. He's always behind in the draft. He's never dropping back to the team car to get food or water. We're always keeping him off front, close to the front of the peloton, out of trouble. You know, the further you go back, the more trouble you can get into. A rider crashes in a race like the Tour de France. There's 200 riders, and it's like it can be like dominoes. So one person's mistake can take down 60 riders like that. You know, it's funny because I, I think if I was imagining a cycling team meeting, I'm like, all right, guys, you're going to go ride today. 
Like that's what my team meeting would be like because I have no idea about a pro life. That'd be nice. That'd be nice. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear that there's a guy for climbing to have Lance behind. One of the questions I was wondering is like, did you mind being a domestique? It's like you worked so hard to get to the fucking Super Bowl. Was the idea I'm going to take care of him and then someone's going to do that for me next time or in the future? You know, I did it for, I helped Lance win his first three Tour de Frances, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. And then, yeah, I was starting to get an itch to kind of go out and be a team leader myself. So, yeah, I guess at one point during my career, yeah, I started getting tired of being a domestic or, or just, I, I never wanted to, to look back at the end of my career and say, like, I wish I went out and tried it myself, you know? I mean, I could have stayed comfortable and been on, you know, America's team and stayed in a comfortable spot, but I, I was excited to see what else was out there. And, you know, maybe I could challenge in a race like the Tour de France. And my goal was to try to win someday. The best I did was four. Of the best cyclists in the world. Yeah, I, I don't know. I never imagined myself in that position now. So, I mean, yeah, it was pretty cool. Pretty special. You know, it sounds like you, from what you've talked about, your mental is like one of your, your big advantages. Yeah. One of my biggest assets, I think, as a pro professional cyclist is my ability to suffer. I feel like I could suffer with the with the best of them. I don't know what that came from, but you know, just never give up attitude. And, and in cycling, it's really cycling is all about suffering. So the ability to never give up, I had that to my advantage. I think it's my New England roots. I don't know what it is. Sometimes it's maybe too tough. You know, I ground my teeth down all that. Maybe that wasn't the best idea. Did you say you ground your teeth down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that from during cycling you ground your teeth down? Yeah, when I, you know, the O three tour, I uh, rode the majority of the tour with a fractured collarbone. So I was grinding my teeth during the stage and at night during my sleep. And I did the same thing in the 2002 Giro d'Italia Tour of Italy. So yeah, a lot of grinding. You grind your teeth during your stages and then at night doing that. And then, you know, I just destroyed my teeth. So I got all caps. So yeah, don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Not wise. I was thinking a lot of times in our show, we asked for the a challenge, so the, the Tyler Hamilton challenge. Oh, nice. I was thinking, how can people specifically maybe improve their mental toughness? I don't know. I like to be, go out and do something kind of like epic once in a while, just to kind of keep that feeling of just being out there and being really suffering, or suffering in a good way, but just doing the, whether it's a long, really long bike ride, just a one-day bike ride, or, or maybe it's a three-day bike pack trip or something like that. I do have a on my bucket list, I'd like to run 50 miles. That'd be cool. I'm, I turned 50 in March, so. Oh, sweet, man. Maybe I'll run 50 miles in 2021. I run slow, but like, you know, if I can run slow and steady to run 50, it would be cool. You ever hear of Wim Hof? Yeah. So yeah, jumping, like we have a bunch of rivers here in Missoula. Five different rivers kind of converge on Missoula. So there's plenty of spots to jump in the cold water. And uh, I think that's pretty cool, jumping in really cold water. Go up to your neck for like a minute. They do it for longer, but it's fun. It takes your breath away and it, it puts you right in the now, really. And afterwards, you feel fantastic. I was thinking, man, you kind of inspired me, unfortunately. There's a secret ride in Austin called Tor Das Hugel. It's a 12,000 foot climb, 111 miles uh, of Austin's major mountains. And it's supposed to be a, like a 10, 12 hour ride of, of just pure pain. Oh. And it's supposed to come up. So I, I think because of you, I, I might go epicness. You should do it. Damn it, dude. Why do we have to talk today? I'll support you from Missoula. <laughs> All right, dig that. Amazing talking to you. This is something we can talk about. This is probably a longer topic. is relationships. Oh, yeah. 
Because it was your relationship, you kind of interwoven it. You interwove it through your book, and I see on your, you know, on your Instagram, you're on a, in a new relationship. So yeah, yeah, that's, I'm sure that's a very long story. Oh yeah, but all good. Yeah, I'll, no like regrets or like it's challenging sometimes. Yeah, I've been married twice, one like long marriage, and then one short little kind of quick marriage. And yeah, then I took some time to kind of just take everything in and took a few steps back and took a few deep breaths and yeah got a great gal in my life now named christina and yeah i feel pretty lucky she's got two great kids two young kids and it's a lot of fun we do a lot of activities together she's into cycling running and just being outdoors yeah it's nice it's nice i feel lucky it's awesome that you feel lucky what have you learned in terms of the relationship communicating sharing your feelings yeah not necessarily you know i i am from new england sometimes we Hold their feelings in really tight. Yeah, being open and honest and, and transparent. I came single recently, so it's something I'm still uh, working through. I mean, almost 40, and I'm just like, get married, have kids. My ex, she's, you know, great girl. Relationships are hard. You're always working at them. But when you find the right one, it's great. Again, I feel lucky. I feel lucky. Do you feel lucky in life? Do you feel like you're a lucky person? I do. I mean, I've had some bad luck, certainly. And you know, I've gone through some tough times in my life, but yeah, I feel lucky. Again, I get goosebumps, <laughs> but I feel lucky. Yeah, just to you know, like, and I feel lucky to kind of come through some hard times and having the, just the right people around me. And I've been fortunate. I've been really fortunate. And uh, you know, life's not perfect, but life's pretty good. Yeah, and I think life's pretty good for you too. I've asked that question to different people, not not as much, just maybe a few times. And some people don't feel lucky, and some people do. And I just find that fascinating. I think when I've looked back, I've been thinking of regrets recently. Like, oh, I didn't get this house and I didn't buy this thing. And like two days ago, I was like, I was thinking about my house that I do have. And I was like, they're pretty fucking cool house, man. Like you're in a cool area. You're close to this taco place. You're like close to this, some coffee shops you like. You live in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. I was just saying on the flip side, I was like, man, there's a, a lot of luck and things that have worked out. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Tyler Hamilton, you're the man. Looking forward to tell people. And also, I'll tell people to check out your podcast, Adventure Audio. We'll tell them about the book. Thanks. Can I give one piece of feedback? Yeah. You say I have a little coaching business. You should say I have the biggest fucking coaching business you've ever seen. That's great. I appreciate that. Because you're going to keep it little. If you keep calling it little, just say it's a coaching business. Even if it's, you know, just say coach. I like that. Thanks for the feedback. No. Pleasure talking with you, man. I'm, yeah, very grateful. Very cool. Likewise, likewise. Uh, nice to meet you. But yeah, let's keep the conversation rolling. I dig it, man. Let me know when you're heading through Missoula. All right. Have a good night. Thank you. You too. What's well, a wrap. I hope you love the episode as much as I did. If you did, go buy Tyler's book, The Secret Race, or check him out on Instagram at RealTylerHamilton. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go make some secrets together. And before you go, tweet at me at Noah Kagan and let me know what you thought of this episode. I'm also doing an insane giveaway where I'm giving away my Tesla. Yes, my Tesla. Make sure you subscribe to youtube.com slash okdork to find out. And if you haven't yet, which I know you have because you're awesome, subscribe to my YouTube channel where I post exclusive juicy business and marketing content. That's youtube.com slash okdork. Uh, final, a couple shout out to my amazing team. Special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com as always for doing everything with these episodes. Thank you to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Jen from the Dork Team. It takes a team to do all the things we're doing. And finally, a special shout out to Brandon Wells. Again, I love you, dog, of AppSumo for all of the YouTube magic you do. And Jay, his new director, Accomplice, who is doing some amazing work on the upcoming YouTube videos for the AppSumo channel. Thank you for everything. 
Have a hydrated day.